0: And uh, what goes after it, it it looks like it's unusual and that it's not kind of in the normal flow um, of the text. And it also addresses a topic that's sensitive and needs careful handling. So normally here we would, uh, after a short talk, move into a time of discussion. And then after some discussion, we would answer some questions live. Uh, We think that's probably not a wise thing to do with this sort of topic. So instead, I'm going to talk a lot longer. I apologize for that in advance, but I'm going to. And then we're going to come to a close. And if you would like to discuss anything or ask any questions, we'd love to do that in a a more private setting and in a more um, uh, careful manner. So we really do invite questions still. We still would love to talk about things. We just think it's right to do that more carefully uh, in this case. So to begin with, um, Sarah is going to come and read to us and we're in Luke chapter 16 and uh, we're starting at verse 16 and if you've got one of these blue Bibles nearby you, you can find that on page 1050. That's Luke chapter 16, that's a big 16, over the page and you're looking for verse 16, a small 16, big or small sixteens, take all the 16s, it'll be fine. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached and everyone is forcing their way into it. It is easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke of a pen to drop out of the law. Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery, and the man who who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Let's pray. Father God, as we come to listen to your words today, please help us to uh, understand them rightly. Please grant that we wouldn't be uh, misled or misunderstand, um, but that we would hear your voice um, speaking to us by your Holy Spirit. Uh, Please help me as I try and explain and communicate things to do that well, and uh, please help us all as we listen. Um, to listen as though you were speaking to us and to be ready to submit and understand. Amen. And my app's just crashed, which is a uh, hazard. I'll just get that back open. Then I can control all my slides and you'll like that. So what have we got here? Well, the, um, the, the, the first verse in this section we're looking at seems to be talking about a new age dawning. Right, It seems to be like we're turning over the page in a book. One chapter ends, uh, a new chapter begins, and John, this is John the Baptist if you're not familiar with these things, he's the forerunner to Jesus. He's a key character. If you followed through this story that you would have seen, he is like the dividing line between the two. In some ways, he's got a foot in both camps. Up until this John showed up, um, back at the start of Jesus' story, the law and the prophets had center stage. That's what Jesus says. And what does he mean by law and prophets? That's just um, Jewish shorthand for the teachings from God that they'd received and handed down through the history of their nation. So the stories of their people, the ways um, they had uh, heard from God, the commands they'd heard through Moses and through others, the challenges, the rebukes which had come to them through different prophets, different messengers that God had sent them over the years, the law and the prophets. Now there is a a new chapter and the page has turned. There's good news in this new chapter. There's a change that's being announced and there's this good news of the kingdom, it says there. The good news of the kingdom is being preached or being announced or being proclaimed. What on earth is the good news of the kingdom? Let's break it down into pieces. So first, the kingdom. Well, fairly straightforwardly, the kingdom is a realm The realm in which God is acknowledged as king. That's pretty straightforward. Now, there's a sense in which God is a king everywhere and always, in which he rules everything. Here, we're talking about a realm where he's acknowledged, not ignored, and where he's actively ruling. That's the the kingdom. And then it says there's this good news about the kingdom that's going out. What's the good news? What's changed that sees the kingdom take center stage? The good news is that it has drawn near. It's come near. That's what we've seen so much of as we've walked through the story of Jesus up to here. If you've been with us these last months, we've seen the kingdom breaking in. At long last, the king is coming. John has prepared the way, and now now it's here. He's bringing his kingdom with him. He's bringing his active rule. He is restoring things that are broken. That's why there's lots of stories of healing that you've seen in here, casting out of demons. That's why he spends so much of his time with the wrong sort of people, because he is renewing things that have grown cold, picking up things that have been forgotten, uncovering things that have been covered. That's why he's teaching so often. He's calling for a renewal of devotion to God in the right spirit. The kingdom has finally drawn near. The kingdom's at hand, and that's good news That's the good news that's being preached, uh, being announced in this new age, and everyone is being urged to enter. That's what Jesus is doing as he goes around. He's urging people to come into this new kingdom. It's a new kind of kingdom, one where everyone and anyone can be welcomed in. It's not a kingdom that comes to kind of crush and destroy and conquer and overpower and push everything else out of the way. It's a kingdom that you can join, a kingdom that you can enter into. And that's probably the sense that that last section of verse 16 is getting over. Everyone is forcing their way into it. It's a difficult phrase to translate. Probably means that everyone's being urged to come in. So there's this new age dawning. There's this page turning from the law and the prophets to the kingdom. But what is new about this new age? What's the distinction that Jesus wants to highlight to us when he says there's a new thing happening? Well, I'll tell you what's not new. It's not the king. This isn't a kind of a good cop, bad cop, two act thing where you know the mean old God of the Old Testament gets the first chapter, but now Jesus, all woke and nice, gets to run the second chapter and rewrite the story. That, that is, that's heresy, and it's a very old heresy. Belongs to Marcion in the second century. Um, the king is still on his throne, the one same true king. Uh, he's unchanging through it all. It's not a new age because there's a new king. Okay, That's one thing that's clear. Verse 17 shows us something else. It's not a new age because his design for the kingdom has changed either. He says it's easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke of a pen to drop out of the law. That law, and that kind of set of teachings and rules and commands that govern how we are to live. That's just Jesus' way of saying the design for God's kingdom hasn't changed. The way it should operate, the way it should work, the way we should conduct ourselves within it, that hasn't changed. Now, if you're a student of these things, you'll know there are some things in this law that Jesus is talking about which anticipate Jesus' coming and anticipate what he's going to go on to do on the cross. Things like animal sacrifices, things like temple worship and the regulations around those. These things haven't changed. They're just fulfilling their purposes. His design for them is exactly what it ever was. These all look forward to Jesus. They all point to the significance of what he would do. They're always part of the plan, and they're still part of the one plan that God has had all along. Now we look back. So There's one category of things that belong to to that kind of, we would think about that as ceremonial rules. There's other things in this law which talk about how to run a nation, how to administer justice, and things like that. Again, these haven't changed. They've just fulfilled their purpose. See, Israel had a unique role as a unique nation state. Their task was to show the world what an earthly nation living under God's commands would be like. And they had a set time and a set place in God's plans. And those things, those things in the law fulfilled their purpose too. His design for them is exactly what it ever was. It's always part of the plan. But I guess the important thing for us to see here is that his design for life and living, his design for the fundamental ways we should conduct ourselves toward one another and towards him, they haven't changed. If you think about it for a minute, that actually makes sense. If God is good and if he's loving as he reveals himself to be throughout the Bible, then his design for life, his design for how we should live will be a design for our good. And not just arbitrary rules to make things difficult or squeeze the fun out of life. God's way is the best way and his design for living doesn't change because it was always and is always a design for our good. More than that, I guess, the the, the way God tells us to live is a reflection of his own character. as an expression of who he is. So what's truly good cannot change because it's rooted in God himself. I mean, imagine this. Imagine one day it's right for children to submit to their parents. Imagine the next day it's right for parents to submit to their children, which kind of feels a bit like contemporary culture in some ways. How, how could that be? How could that ever happen? Only if what was right didn't really have any objective anchor. Only if what was right was not really attached to anything, if right could drift wherever it liked or wherever culture thought it should go. But Christians believe that the fundamental idea and anchor of goodness of what's right is God himself. He defines what's right. And by implication, he defines what is wrong. Not God is wrong. And what he does is good, and that defines good. So even as this new age dawns, and even as things are changing, what hasn't changed Is God's design for the right way to live. It can't change. That's because God, in whom that right is anchored, doesn't change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever, like he tells us he is. So the king hasn't changed, okay? His design for his kingdom hasn't changed. Certain aspects have been fulfilled and served their purposes. But his design for his kingdom hasn't changed. So what has changed? First, it's his coming that's changed, like we talked about already, something dramatic, something fundamental changed when Jesus walks onto the scene. The king has come, and with him, his kingdom is coming. It's drawn near. The kingdom is at hand, as the Bible puts it. What does that mean? That means it's kind of touchable. It's, It's tangible. It's something you can experience in the here and now because Jesus walked the earth. That is good news. But there's more than that that's new. There's more that's changed because this is a new age of grace that's begun. Flashback for a moment to this guy, John, who's walking around dressed funny. The king hasn't changed. His design for his kingdom hasn't changed. And we don't measure up to that design. So when John arrives on the scene... Wearing his odd clothes and proclaiming the good news. That's how what he does is described in Luke chapter 3. We have to consider carefully, what is that good news? And Matthew, who writes one of the other stories of Jesus, one of the other gospels here, he tells us a bit more about what John does, how he goes about proclaiming good news. Do you know what it sounds like when you proclaim good news? It sounds like shouting, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. That's him proclaiming good news. The good news is repent. How is that good? Well, it's good news for people who don't tick all the boxes. It's good news for people who haven't got everything right. It's good news for people whose life isn't totally sorted. You see, we've no place in God's people by rights. We've no chance of being a part of God's kingdom by right. Because how could a holy, a perfect, and a good God allow someone like that, someone like me, into their kingdom or have anything to do with me? John's good news is there's still hope. How all isn't lost, he says, there's a way. An age where God pours out his mercy on all kinds of people is dawning, even pouring out his mercy on those who have rejected his design for living. An age where his grace means all get offered this opportunity to be welcomed into his kingdom. It's good news. The good news is repent. Change your mind. Change your direction. Change your path. Turn back to the king because people who do that can still enter in. There's a new way that's been opened up for them in Jesus. I think often we would like to imagine that Jesus will welcome people into his kingdom without this difficult step of repentance, without this difficult act of saying, I was wrong, you were right, let's do it your way. We like to imagine his kingdom doesn't need that sort of agreement, that alignment around who's actually king, who gets to call the shots. But there's this unavoidable logic to the centrality of repentance. How could God's kingdom include anyone who doesn't think that God is their king? Remember, God's kingdom is not a patch of ground. It's not like an earthly kingdom. It's not like a line on a map that you get to stand inside or outside of arbitrarily. It's the realm where God is welcomed as king. You cannot be in God's kingdom if God is not your king. You are not. In God's kingdom, if God is not your king, it's definition. So repentance, this saying to God, you are right, I was wrong. You're the king and I'm not. That has to be the path into the kingdom. Does that make sense? So if we try and get our arms around these first two verses, hopefully we're getting some feel for what's going on here. This new age is dawning. Something fundamental has shifted and yet it's not the king. And it's not the king's design for living. But now his kingdom's at hand. There's this new invitation into it, this urging, come in. And the road in is through repentance. Then, all of a sudden, Jesus starts talking about divorce and remarriage. What's that doing here? I think the best way to understand that is it's an example of somewhere where God's design for his kingdom hasn't changed. Somewhere it seems like people were beginning to question that. They were beginning to wonder, well, maybe there's another way. Maybe this new kingdom might be different on this front. There was live debate in Jesus' day around what was right or wrong uh, in this area in wider society. Big disagreements about the right way to conduct themselves. Even inside the Jewish community, the community of God's people, in theory, all singing off the same hymn sheet all using this same law, there were two divergent views. You can imagine people would be wondering, where does Jesus stand? What is his kingdom going to be like? Where will the lines be for him? On the one hand, you had this ancient school of a guy called Shammai telling you divorce is only for exceptional circumstances. On the other hand, you have this school of Hillel who's saying you can divorce for basically anything you like. Burn the cooking. Time to get a divorce. Find somebody else more attractive. Time to get a divorce. Divorce. Really? It's pretty modern for 2,000 years ago, isn't it? Just not in a good way. Why does Jesus wade into this debate? Why does he wade into this debate sounding more strict than the strict end of this guy Shammai? Because it's a distortion of the king's rules to say you can divorce for any and every reason. There is a new age dawning, but the king hasn't changed, and his design for his people hasn't changed. The king's design has a purpose, remember, it's not arbitrary. It's for the good of his people. It's for the good of his kingdom. And it's more, this distortion, this is harming the king's people. It's obstructing the king's purposes. So the good news is the king is coming. And the king is coming, restoring his rule. But it's right that we should talk some more about divorce and God's design rather than just leaving it there. It's a topic Jesus chooses to bring into the foreground here. As an example, I think, primarily of where the king's design hasn't changed, he's demonstrating here the continuity of God's design. This isn't all he has to say about marriage and divorce. And this particular verse, if we read it on its own, it can give us a less than full understanding of the Bible's wider teaching on this matter. And it's something we should be informed about as a church. Uh, Along with the other leaders here, I spent a lot of time over the past few weeks looking very closely at what Jesus has to say about marriage and divorce, trying to examine the wider teaching of the Bible on these things and reading what others have written. I want to share with you this morning a summary of those conclusions that we've drawn together. And perhaps this seems like really irrelevant to you and you're thinking, whatever, I just don't care. Please don't tune out because, because divorce is having a huge impact on many people around you. Although fewer people are choosing to marry in the first place, that's where the stats are going, more and more people will just cohabit. Even with that, over 60% of marriages today are expected to end in divorce, 60%. So it would be good for you to be equipped to think biblically about, to understand why God's design is the way it is, to think about how to respond in this real world where things aren't the way they should be. How do we respond to this messy reality of life? Let's, let's start with God's design for marriage in the first place. And I'm going to be longer today because there's just more we have to say in one block. Normally we're not this long. Marriage is actually God's invention. It doesn't belong to the state. It's not theirs to define or regulate or design or choose. Marriage first enters the picture right back at the beginning of the book. Uh, Back in Genesis chapter 2, it's early doors. Jesus tells us this is how Adam and Eve are related. In Genesis it narrates how Adam and Eve come together to be united as one. Jesus tells us that was marriage that was going on there. Mark 10, 6 to 8. It's not just nookie with Adam and Eve. They were actually married by God and before God. So marriage comes into the world in the beginning in response to a problem. The one thing that is not good in all of God's good creation It's not good for man to be alone. Genesis 2.18, that aloneness, it can't be addressed by any other creature that God has made, no matter how much you like your dog, won't work. Adam needed somebody suitable, the Bible tells us, somebody like him. That's important we realize. The final, the full solution to this not good to be alone, it's not for everyone to get married. That's not the design. It's for us to be in relationship with God. That's what really fulfills this. Marriage is not better than singleness. It's not the right and only destination for everyone. That's not what the Bible teaches. In fact, the Apostle Paul, one of Jesus' earliest followers, tells us clearly there are significant advantages to being single. And marriage, the Bible tells us, doesn't endure into heaven. There, in fact, won't be any marriage there. Matthew twenty-two thirty. 30. Yet everything will be good in heaven. In fact, it will be perfect. For many who are married, it's quite hard to get our heads around how that's going to be good. But it will be. Uh, that's that, that not goodness of being alone is going to be extinguished forever because we'll be both with God and with all his people together and properly united. That's how it's going to be fulfilled and subsumed. How has God designed marriage in the meantime? Well, his design is that it should be exclusive and unbreakable. Genesis 2.24, where it's introduced, says a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife. And they become one flesh. Marriage is designed as this permanent uniting, not to be undone by humans. Jesus says what God has joined together, let no one separate, in Mark 10.9. It's designed that way for our good, but it also reflects God's character. You see, the Bible tells us marriage isn't just marriage. Marriage is a picture of the relationship between Jesus Christ and his church. Ephesians 5:22 to 32 that's a relationship which is exclusive between Jesus and his church it's a relationship which is unbreakable between Jesus and his church Jesus is never unfaithful to his church his church must not be unfaithful to him Jesus will never forsake his church his church must not forsake him that is why adultery is outside of God's design it distorts that picture it undermines the exclusivity of the relationship that's why divorce is outside of God's design it distorts the picture it undermines the unbreakability of that relationship it's important to know there are lots more ways we distort God's design for relationships jesus actually speaks about even looking at somebody with lust in your heart as adultery as a breach of that design in matthew 5:28 it undermines the exclusivity that should be at the heart of relationship Breaking God's design undermines what marriage is meant to picture, but that's not all the harm that it does. Breaking God's design never results in our good. Because his design flows out of his character and his goodness, out of his love and care for us creatures. His design isn't just right, it's also best for us. So there's always harm when we break that design. There's a foundation for you, okay? That's the ground we're building on. Marriage is good, we're alone is not, but it's not the final solution. It's not the only option. Marriage should be exclusive and unbreakable, like the relationship between Jesus and his church that it pictures. Marriage is for our good, and when we distort it, we reap harm. But we live in a broken and a fallen world. Things are not like they should be. Uh, life doesn't always work out like it should. And so there are some circumstances where it's acceptable for a marriage to be broken. We read today Luke sixteen eighteen. Jesus doesn't elaborate here as he restates God's continuing design for a marriage relationship, continuingly exclusive, unbreakable. In other passages, Jesus is clear there are exceptions. So this is Matthew five, thirty-two. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her a victim of adultery. In this case, where there's sexual immorality, it is permissible for a marriage to be broken. You should notice here though, what Jesus doesn't say is it must be broken, or even that it should be broken, just that it is acceptable. The design for exclusivity has been distorted through sexual immorality. It's then acceptable for the unbreakable to be broken. We can try and reason about why that's the case. We can try and draw bigger conclusions and arguments from this, but Jesus doesn't explain it any further for us. And Jesus only mentions this one exception in all of the Gospels. You might think there were no others. The Apostle Paul adds a second, speaking about marriage relationships. When one person from a couple becomes a Christian, and the other party, well, when one person from a couple becomes a believer, Paul encourages them, pursue your marriage. Try and keep your marriage. But he accepts the other party might choose divorce. And what should be unbreakable has been broken. Uh, One Corinthians seven fifteen. The brother or sister is not bound in such circumstances. Now we understood that to mean that divorce is acceptable, accepted. The believer is free to remarry, is what it means to not be bound. Now you could see Jesus and Paul in tension with each other. You could say, you know, Jesus starts out, he gets it some of the way, Paul goes and corrects him. Or you could say, Jesus has got it all right and Paul is starting to undermine Jesus' teaching. We need to throw away Paul. That's not the right way to deal with the Bible. It's all true. It's all God's word. And when we don't understand how it fits together, it's us that has the problem, not the Bible. Rather than seeing them in tension here with different views on divorce, We understand this as what's called casuistic law. It's a big word for you, casuistic law. What that is, is that's example decisions set out to illustrate a general pattern. Teaching in the Bible often looks like this rather than giving exhaustive lists. Here's an example. Uh, Exodus 21, 33 to 34. If anyone uncovers a pit or digs one and fails to cover it and an ox or donkey falls into it, the one who opened the pit must pay the owner for the loss, take the dead animal in exchange. What does this mean? Are you scot-free if a horse or a sheep falls in because the law only says ox or donkey? No. Don't be silly. That's two illustrative examples to demonstrate and establish the more general pattern. You're responsible. You dug a hole and you covered it. You're responsible. That's how the Bible often teaches. That's how we understand it, teaching on divorce. That's how you can put together this absolute prohibition, this one exception, and then this additional exception. We've a general principle, marriage should be exclusive, should be unbreakable. We've got two illustrative examples of exceptions to this. It's not very many, but it is enough to show us that circumstances exist under which divorce is acceptable, under which remarriage is acceptable too. We're clear still it's to be exceptional. Jesus flatly rejects. The Pharisees' suggestion that there could be divorce for any and for every reasons, Matthew nineteen three to 6 But real life is messy and complicated. Each situation is unique. It would require careful listening to understand the details, study and wisdom, compassion mixed with righteousness, prayer to seek God's way, to understand the right approach in lots of cases. It's just not possible to draw up a list of rules that will tell us what we need to do. Quick summary for you of our big sweep of our understanding as leaders here on divorce and remarriage. If you're interested, uh, if you want to know more, I'd encourage you to read our policy document we put together. Uh, you can find it in our public uh, documents library, tinyurl.com slash hopecitypublic. city will take you to... Uh, set of folders and files where you can find our policies and a whole set of matters. We just want to be open and upfront with where we are, how we arrived at those positions, so you can understand uh, what's going on. It's so our best understanding at present as leaders here. We try hard to read and think carefully about this, but we know, we know we're not perfect, and we certainly don't claim to be that. We have biases that we don't even see, and we've got deceitful hearts that we cannot fully defend against. Um, So we want to remain humble students of the Bible. We want to continue to try and carefully discern and follow what it teaches. We stand ready to reform our position when we learn more, when we understand we're wrong. Why am I telling you all this? As leaders in the church, it's right you know what we believe and how we understand things. But this is one of those matters where Christians disagree. Uh, Even Christians trying to reason carefully from the Bible, even Christians who have studied and thought, It's important you know, um, you don't have to agree with us on this to be a part of our gatherings. You're welcome here. But we really do ask you to disagree gently and uh, gracefully. It's particularly important in this matter because people who've been up close to this issue find it so painful. The associated experiences are really often um, terrible. I do need to say, if you want to be a part of the core of this church, you have to be ready to abide by our policy that flows out of our understanding you still don't have to agree with it or agree with understanding, but you have to be able to abide by it. So I do encourage you to read, reflect on it. If you want to talk about anything in confidence of one of the leaders, we love to talk. Like coffee, ready anytime. I know that's a lot of content, a lot of serious stuff today. I felt like it was right for us to cover that in more detail when the passage brings the issue into the foreground. But I want to take this back to the passage before we're done here. So it's got more time. Do you want a quick stretch? Everyone have a nice stretch. Stretch. <laughs> Let's take this back to the passage. Let's see what this is teaching us here. One of the things that makes the new age of God's kingdom good news is that it's a new age of grace Uh, Everyone is now urged to enter in, even those who've rejected the king's design, even those who've been pushed outside of the king's design by somebody else's act. Imagine people who knew they weren't living in keeping with God's design, who knew they were outside of it, sitting and listening to Jesus saying these things. Hearing him say, same king, same design. I bet they'd be wondering what he would have to say to them as somebody outside that design. Perhaps here today you're wondering, how does Jesus respond to you? He's given us some good news. You don't have to wonder. The Bible records an encounter in John chapter 4, which shows us more of how Jesus works this out in practice. How he responds to somebody who's living far outside of God's design. How he models that for us. In John chapter four, Jesus, is in the middle of a journey in his travels, he ends up chatting to a woman, which would be really unusual—a woman from another kind of tribe or race, it would be very, very unusual. His disciples are all foraging for food. He's the one who starts the conversation with the woman, and as it unfolds, we discover she is living far, far, far outside of God's design. She's had five husbands. It's good going. The man she has now is not even her husband. If you walk through that story, what do you see? What do you learn? First and foremost, Jesus does not reject her out of hand. He doesn't say, ooh, unclean, dirty, get away from me. He doesn't even just keep himself to himself, which would have been so easy. He could have just ignored her and let her pass by. He doesn't keep the conversation at surface level. Instead, he invites her into the kingdom. He offers her living water, that story shows you. That is a, a picture of the Holy Spirit who flows through every person in the kingdom, He meets somebody who it seems like has made a career out of breaking God's design. Of rejecting God as their king or at least living outside of God's design. We don't really know the actor. Jesus' first response to her, the place he starts is inviting her in to the kingdom. He doesn't call them judgment. He doesn't send her away. Thing for us to learn. But what he does do is he does bring her situation into the light. After making that invitation, he knew all along that she lived outside of God's design And what he doesn't do is just shove it under the rug. Let's just forget that. Why don't we just pretend together that never happened? Let's hope it goes away. He doesn't do that. He brings it out somewhat gently, but into the open. Why does he do that? Because if she is going to enter the kingdom, he knows she has to repent and bow to the king. You can't be in the kingdom without bowing to the king. That's what it means. So he shows her where she's not bowing to the king. He gives her the opportunity to respond, to choose her response. And it seems she does choose to respond. Rather than keeping her at a distance or on probation, she gets to take a leading role in advancing Jesus' mission right there and then. She outstrips his own disciples at sharing his message. She brings the whole town out to hear Jesus. John chapter 4. It's a great read. Commend it to you this afternoon. It's a new age of grace, but it's a new age of grace under the same king. There we go. I've got out-of-date slides. We'll just have to manage. It's a kingdom that offers a welcome to anyone and everyone who repents and bows the knee. So as we close, I promise I am closing, I'm going to take two or three more minutes just to start thinking about how do we apply what we've been talking about today. What does it mean for you and me? What does it mean for here and now? We have to start at the sharp end. If you have broken God's good and unchanging design, if you've broken that particularly by an illegitimate divorce, which is what Jesus is talking about here, or in other ways, which we've not talked about today, what does it mean for you? Well, practically, there are acts that can't be undone. Uh, There are consequences which don't go away. It's not like we could or should just click undo. Now, we have to admit we're wrong. We have to admit the king was right. We have to bow the knee. And I guess the question for us is, are you there? Are we there? We give you a little test for this, a diagnostic to help us think about whether we're there. If you were to talk to somebody about this situation, if you were to bring it out, what story would you tell? Would you find yourself defending your actions and excusing them? Do you blame others rather than accepting your part? Now, I'm sure there were others to blame. Uh, there are always others, but most of the time we're also a part and often we're a big part. Do you find yourself attempting to justify what you did? He made me do it. Or looking to find some wiggle room in the king's design. I know God said that, but, but, but maybe there's a way out over here. This case is different. Or do you own it? Do you agree with the king you did wrong? That's the point we need to come to here because once we're there, you can own the glorious truth that Jesus died for that. And for you, the ultimate penalty which goes with our mess is death and Jesus has taken it instead of you. That's the invitation. Bow the knee to the king. Join the kingdom. Now there's a full and total welcome into his kingdom for people who bow the knee. It's not some sort of probation or back row seat. Keep your distance, thanks very much. That's how amazing and how big God's grace is. It's enough to totally... And fully restore anything. This has to go along with a new commitment to living inside God's design. Jesus at the end of one of these kind of encounters says go and sin no more. He doesn't say go carry on. It's cool. That's not what he says. There's an obligation on you to do what can be done to restore things. What can be done? It's hard to know. Perhaps someone else could see the situation more clearly. Perhaps they could give you advice what it might feel like. And then come and join Jesus' mission. Remember that woman at the well. She's on the front of the mission. If you want to talk through your situation, um, you're welcome to come and grab a leader and do that in confidence. So there's one case there, okay? If you know you're outside of God's design and you put yourself there, how do you respond? Another case, what if you're wrestling with God's design right now? What if you're wondering, could this really be good? Could this really be best? Is this really right? Well, remember, he's the king. He's the king who loves us, who works with everything he has for our good. So check your heart. Would you be ready to bow to the king and to his good rule, even if it didn't go where you wanted to? Would you be willing to trust him nevertheless? Or do you just want a God who always agrees with you, who always goes your way, who always approves of your path? Because none of us are perfect, and so we're all going to find ourselves out of line with God. Sometimes, if you never find yourself out of line with God, your God is yourself, not the real God. God disagrees with us somewhere. Probably somewhere we're desperate that he would agree. We still need to bow the knee. If you're wrestling with it right now, be sure you're ready to bow the knee. What about if you're living in the pain and the mess that so often flows out the back of where we've messed with God's good design or where others have done that to you? What does this say to you? The king welcomes you in. Um, wounded though you are, uh, he'll pour out his love and care on you in the midst of this broken world. So don't lose a heart. Um, the age we're living in today is not, uh, it's not the end. Uh, it's not just filled with grace, but it has got the beginnings of restoration. Um, Jesus is at work. He's at work here and now. He is beginning to make things new. Uh, he's beginning to mend the broken. So your brokenness is not meant. To, excuse me. <laughs> uh. <laughs> Thanks, bud. <laughs> brokenness is not meant to be the end of the story, the end of your story. Uh, think again of that woman at the well. Uh, you are not condemned to uh, a life on the bench. God is not a god of dead ends of hopelessness. He's a god of He's a god of turnarounds. Of uh, God of second chances the God of the second half it 's true at the same that this is just the dawning of a new age, so even though there 's a measure of restoration for you here and now, um, you have to set your hope on the world to come, uh, the world the king has promised to bring, uh, the world where this is finally going to be made right. There'll be no more pain, uh, no more weeping, no more brokenness, no more wrong. All the consequences, all the mess is erased and done. This life might seem big and long, but it's not. Ultimately, it's like a a moment. It's like a breath compared to the eternity that is coming. The vast expanse of forever is going to make this seem like nothing, like no time at all. Yes, it's a mess, and yes, it's ugly, but it will finish. And if you're just walking alongside people who are living in these things, what does this say to you? It says, live in the grace of the king and welcome others to live in the grace of the king. We're not a bunch of nice people who largely get it right and can hang out with other nice people. If you knew what was in my past and my heart, we're wretches who are saved by grace. And that's how we need to welcome other people. We welcome one another as we all come to bow before the king to say, you're right, I was wrong. Your way, not mine. We welcome one another. We're to cheer one another on. We're to cheer one another on as we try and bow the knee to the king. As he extends his endless grace to others, we need to extend it to them too. As we bring our brokenness to him, as we see him restoring even these deep wounds, as we see him raising even the dead, where it seems we've written ourselves off, been written off by others, God has more to do with us yet. So we want to be A community of grace. We have a king. We need to bow to him. A new age of grace is dawning. Sorry, that was long. But we landed. Let's pray together. Just a few verses, Lord, but um, a lot to say. Thank you so much for your goodness. Thank you for your good design, uh, Lord. Thank you that you um, have designed for our good I Have a heart that is good and love and care and that your ways are good and right ways. Thank you that this new age of grace has come and that there is a way back into your kingdom for anyone and for everyone. That your arms are wide open, that you welcome us back. That your son has paid the price and there's nothing that cannot be covered. But God, help us to see clearly that repentance is the door. We can only come into your kingdom when we know and say and believe and bow that you are king. Give us your grace to do that. And do it today. And Lord, as your people, um, I would be a people of grace. It would be a community uh, recognizing that we've all come back, that we've all fallen, that we're all seeking uh, your goodness and your kindness, and we're all coming to enjoy your grace. Bring something beautiful, Lord, out of this mess. Amen. We're gonna close by singing again.